0: Hello, welcome to episode 75, Your Thyroid and Mental Health, with Dr. Katie Rothwell, naturopathic doctor. This is the Good Mood Podcast, and I am Dr. Talia Marcagiani, naturopathic doctor. So, one of the things we have not covered yet in the Good Mood Podcast is the connection between thyroid function and mental health. And as you will find out in this podcast, the thyroid is a gland in the body. That is responsible for our metabolism. An underfunctioning or overfunctioning thyroid, essentially malfunctioning thyroid gland, can result in symptoms of mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression. And so, when someone's diagnosed with anxiety or depression, it's very important to do a thyroid workup. So, I talk with my colleague, Katie Rothwell, who is the resident naturopathic doctor. And thyroid expert. She's an ND, clinic owner, thyroid authority, and educator. Her mission is to break the mold of traditional thyroid care and to bring evidence-based thyroid education to practitioners and patients. As a clinician, Dr. Rothwell uses her signature framework and a practical down-to-earth approach to help her patients navigate the confusing world of thyroid health. As an educator, she is fiercely fiercely passionate about providing accurate evidence-based thyroid education to a variety of health professionals, including naturopathic doctors. She created her two flagship practitioner trainings before creating the Thyroid Academy, a revolutionary educational platform for both health professionals and the public. She also lectures regularly to her ND colleagues and provides consulting services across North America. You can find her at your.thyroid.nd on Instagram, and at her website, rootedinhealth.ca, and where you can purchase and check out her very educational programs. Without further ado, here's Dr. Katie Rothwell and Thyroid and Your Mental Health. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. This is awesome. This is something we've been trying to get into the works for like we were saying a couple of years. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time coming for sure. And the topic of the day is thyroid, Uh, Mm -hmm. a very important topic that we haven't covered on this podcast. And so let's dive in. So maybe you could tell us, um, how you got into thyroid health. Um, because I think it's been a few years that you've narrowed your focus more.
1: Yeah, it's been probably getting close to like the six or seven year mark of me working more um, specifically in in thyroid care. And like I, I'll, you know, admit it um, openly to, to everyone, you know, when I was going through school and even in like our clinical year, thyroid was not something that I was interested in. I did not enjoy it. Like it seemed very complicated and confusing and I just was like oh I just won't see thyroid patients which like now is laughable for multiple reasons Um, but when I came out into practice I found you know I was seeing a lot of the same people coming into my office as far you know primarily women who had been diagnosed with a thyroid issue taking thyroid medication but they were still experiencing a lot of these chronic Know potentially thyroid related symptoms, um, and they weren't getting any additional care or support from the other parts of their health team, and they were looking for answers. Um, and so that is kind of what's you know started my journey into thyroid care. And then I did, I decided to do you know some testing or a full thyroid panel on myself and found that I had. Um, positive thyroid antibodies, which we can definitely chat about and what that means and how we want to, um, you know, go about assessing and and treating those. Um, But that obviously, you know, just increased my personal interest and investment into thyroid care. So I spent, you know, a good two years just taking every course, reading everything I could, you know, narrowing down my practice. And, and now I, I really see probably 95% of my, my practice is thyroid-based uh, and I do, you know, a lot of thyroid-focused um, education and courses and things like that for other practitioners as well. So it's been it's been a really cool journey for me. That's so funny
0: that you start off being like, I'm never going to work with yeah, thyroid. Right. And karma's
1: just like, you just wait, girl.
0: <laughs> it's like you will be teaching the other practitioners. Yeah, I took your course, uh, probably yeah. the first year it came out, I think. Um, Ooh. and really fantastic. So for any practitioner listening, you should get on this. Uh, you also get CE credits for it and, uh, yeah, really great. Cause you can tell that you don't, there, there's obviously like a personal, spin on it like you can usually tell that with people when they're like I've had to do this research not just for my patients but for my own healing yeah. my own self-healing but you can tell that you've dove into all the research like conventional you know the more holistic type research um so really fantastic and maybe we could start by talking about like what is a thyroid i'm sure people have heard about it's thyroid issues like... and maybe googled symptoms but maybe are unaware of what exactly we're talking about so yeah. yeah.
1: I'm going to pick on my husband a little bit. He probably won't <laughs> listen to this, but he does. So um, as I was like getting more and more into thyroid um, medicine and, and care, he was like, so like a thyroid is like a real thing. Like, I just thought it was like a, like a hormone that's in your brain. And I was like, no, like it's, it's actually a gland, you know, it lives in our body, just like a spleen or a liver or, you know, our adrenal glands. Um, So a lot of people don't know what our thyroid is, you know, unless you have a thyroid issue and then, you know, everything about a thyroid gland and what's going on. There's most, my most educated patients are often my thyroid patients because they've had to become so educated and and advocate for themselves. So um, yes, our thyroid is a gland. It lives in the bottom um, of our neck um, and it produces our thyroid hormones and our thyroid hormones are essentially, you know, are basically gas or our like metabolic energy for our body. Um, so our thyroid hormones travel all over our body and enter into every single cell in our body and initiate or activate that cellular energy. So when you, you know, go online and Google thyroid symptoms, you basically come up with a list of like a hundred, 200 different symptoms. It's anything from, you know, low energy to constipation to depression or anxiety, which we're, you know, we're definitely going to talk more about to swelling and puffiness um mm-hmm. hair loss you know so such a long list of symptoms and that is and that is because you know every single cell every part of our body requires thyroid hormone um so it can result in many different types of symptoms um which is i mean very frustrating but also very you know interesting when we think of the importance of thyroid hormone in our body it is so so crucial
0: mm-hmm maybe this is why your husband was like, is this just not like some woo thing? Because it can account for every symptom that anyone's ever from yeah. psychosis to like brittle nails. <laughs>
1: to like yeah. Anything. yeah. Simple things, very complex things for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think like when we think of what we see as NDs and we'll get more into this, but we see a lot of fatigue. We see things yeah. like hair loss and low libido and, and irregular periods and PMS. And we see a lot of things that are troublesome for people, but that don't necessarily get a lot of attention or concern because if they're Mm -hmm. not, you know, life-threatening symptoms, then often doctors will, you know, GPs like conventional doctors will be like, well, there's nothing really we can do here. Or this is just sort of what it's like to get older, even though you're 27. (laughs) And, so a lot of people are like left to kind of Google and then they usually thyroid will come up. If you Google fatigue, like that's gonna be one of the number one uh differential diagnoses that comes up. And mm-hmm. yeah, and so you know, how does the thyroid? Maybe we'll start there, like how can the thyroid go wrong or 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 become imbalanced? And how does that connect to let's let's do anxiety and depression because those are the most common sure,
1: mental health yeah. conditions
0: that probably people are dealing with. But yeah, like how does the thyroid connect? it connects to everything in the body but how does it connect to mental health
1: yeah so i think there's a there's obviously multiple layers that we can chat about but on a purely like Physiological basis. When I talked about thyroid hormones, you know, going into every area of the body and entering cells, um, you know, the brain is one of those areas. So our thyroid hormones enter the brain; they um, enter the cells in our brain. You know, thyroid hormone is essential for brain development and brain function. Um, and like I said, it's that metabolic driver. So without it, that cellular function is really impaired. And if they're cells in our brain are not functioning optimally or not firing optimally, then our brain function can absolutely be impacted in many ways. So that can certainly impact mood, you know, low mood, anxiety. You mentioned like even more concerning or um, um, things like psychosis or, you know, that can absolutely happen when there's not proper thyroid hormone levels in in the brain Mm -hmm. um, because our our brain cells are essentially not functioning as as they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can also include other cognitive symptoms. So not only depression and anxiety, but we also see things like brain fog or trouble Mm -hmm. concentrating, memory issues, feeling forgetful, um, just feeling like you're living in this kind of slow, foggy, you know, brain feeling
0: is something that a lot of my thyroid patients, um, speak about. It's like, yeah, one of the more common symptoms is that brain fog. And and if, if we look at like hypothyroidism, which we yes. differentiate between hyper and hypo, hypothyroidism, yes. the symptoms and the symptoms of symptoms of depression, like low energy, uh, hypersomnia, sleeping more than, you know, nine hours a night changes in appetite changes in weight. Um, yeah. you know, and the low energy and motivation is also can sometimes look like, um, an apathy, right. An anhedonia you're not really interested in doing the things you used to be interested in. So that superimposes directly with hypothyroidism and, yeah. you know, we don't have like a, uh, necessarily like a specific hormonal, um, d- cause of depression. And mm-hmm. in, in many cases, and maybe this in your practice and maybe no more percentages, but like a lot of people that are diagnosed with depression might have an underlying thyroid issue and that might be the cause of their symptoms.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, you touched on a lot of important points. Like there is such a huge overlap between the symptoms of depression and symptoms of hypothyroidism. So I think it's always worth for, you know, patients who are experiencing, you know, depression or low mood or anxiety to have their thyroid you know, properly assessed to see if that is playing a role um, in their mood symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we definitely do see a higher risk of depression with um, hypothyroid patients and up to 60% of people with hypothyroidism have low mood or depression. Like that's a huge mm-hmm. huge percentage. Mm-hmm. Um there was another there was a recent study out of JAMA Psychiatry, so really, you know, top-notch journal in 2020 mm-hmm. looking at anxiety and depression in people with autoimmune hypothyroidism. Um they looked at like over 19 studies, like over 30,000 patients. Um, and they found, you know, basically echoing the same, uh, the same message that, you know, our patients with autoimmune hypothyroidism have a much higher, you know, risk and per, um, percentage of, of experiencing depression and anxiety.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of them are, were diagnosed first with depression, maybe tried on antidepressant medication and maybe it worked a little bit, but it, if it's not, we always talk about the root cause, right? If the underlying yeah driver of their symptoms is hypothyroidism. It's important to uncover and address that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really common story that I hear in clinic. So patients Mm -hmm. will come in and they'll be like, you know, like I've been on this thyroid medication for five, 10, sometimes 15, 20 years, you know, I'm, I still like, I'm tired. I, you know, my mood isn't great. Um, And, you know, the next step in the conventional care system is often offering them an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And some of these, you know, some of the patients will try it and they're like, I don't feel any different. And, and a lot of my other patients will be like, you know, I know I don't feel, I don't feel depressed. I know that it's not, that's not what's going on here. Like it is, is something else. I intuitively know that, you know, there's an underlying reason why I feel this way. And that's, you know, where they meet me and where we, we do, we look deeper and we try to uncover what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Um, so as far as, you know, doing that, I mentioned kind of a proper assessment of the thyroid. I mean, that's often where I'm meeting people and starting their journey. Um, And it's so important to do a thorough assessment and not only do the proper testing, but interpret them, you know, appropriately as well. So you mentioned hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism hypothyroidism is, is certainly the more common of the two. Um, so in hypothyroidism, essentially we're talking about low thyroid function or low production of thyroid hormones. So a lot of those symptoms are on the, you know, slow, low mood, you know, feeling, um, you said, you know, apathy, weight gain, constipation, like all of this kind of slowing down of your, you know, metabolic rate overall Mm -hmm. hyperthyroidism is essentially the opposite of that. So where we see an overproduction of thyroid hormone. So patients with hyperthyroidism all often have, um, you know, very, Stimulating symptoms, so you know they might notice that their heart's racing or or beating faster than it usually would. They may notice anxiety or insomnia and trouble sleeping, weight loss or loose uh, loose stool, um, or diarrhea, sweating a lot. You know, these are some of the things that you know sometimes we see um, on the hyperthyroid side of things.
0: Mm -hmm. So sounds awesome, but is yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah either side is really not great. I mean, there's really that sweet spot right in the middle uh, Mm -hmm. where we're, we're hoping that, you know, we can get most people. So as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, doing that initial assessment, we do want to look at testing of, you know, doing a full thyroid panel. Um, Mm -hmm. So not just testing our TSH or our thyroid stimulating hormone. This is generally, you know, the main screening hormone that's run um, through our GPs, MDs, nurse practitioners. Um, and the general approach is that, you know, if we test TSH and it falls within a normal lab range, then we're good, we're done you know, no other testing or assessment needs to be done. Your thyroid is good and, you know, carry on. Um, And I think that when we approach it in that way, a lot of people are falling through the cracks um, and we're, we're missing a huge percentage of people that could benefit from additional thyroid support or care. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that's a question I have just even clinically for my (laughs) own practice is, you know, so I'll do, it's hard to know when someone comes in with depression, like my starting point is that it could be a variety of different things. I imagine, and I'm not sure in your clinic, if people are coming in who either highly suspect a thyroid issue or know that they, maybe they're already taking thyroid medication, they've already been diagnosed in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, I'll do, um, you know, basic blood work, let's say, and we'll test TSH. And it's hard to know if it's worth diving down the rabbit hole of a full thyroid panel first off the bat. And so I'm I'm curious about that TSH, so thyroid stimulating hormone as a screening tool, you know, Mm -hmm. how, if somebody's TSH is, and so as NDs, we have a little bit more strict ranges that we want to see you know, you have the life labs ranges that are like, you know, TSH might be like, maybe like what 0.05 0.35, to yeah. like
1: 4.35, like somewhere in, you know, mm-hmm. the 0.5 to four is kind of for most labs um, where their, their TSH ranges.
0: Yeah. And then we, as NDs are more like, I've heard things like under 2.5 is a little bit more ideal. Uh, and maybe you can speak more to that in in a second. Um, But when you see someone who's TSH is sort of like one or 1.5, so this would be within the naturopathic ideal range, you know, as a screening tool, is there, you know, I'm sure there is benefit to dig a little bit deeper, but at what point could a clinician say, maybe we don't need to do the $90 thyroid panel? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I
1: think it, it's definitely part of that, you know, clinical assessment and having, Mm -hmm. you know, in the questions that you're asking and not just around, you know, is it a thyroid issue, but is there other things that, you know, you're suspecting Mm -hmm. are contributing to, you know, Mm -hmm. um, depression or low mood. And we often, you know, as a clinician, we're kind of going through our hierarchy, right? Okay. What's most common here. What are the things we want to rule out right away? Um, and what are the things that, you know, we, we need to screen, um, through blood work for. Mm -hmm. So I would say my like screening bare minimum thyroid testing includes TSH, which you mentioned, um, and then also includes thyroid antibodies. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, that is like my bare minimum thyroid panel. And I honestly, I really think that you know, this needs to be adopted as like our thyroid screening panel. Um, so I'll speak first to TSH and then I'll, I'll chat about why the antibodies are, are so important. Um, but like you said, TSH, um, we do like to see it in a bit of a more of a narrow range. So when um we're seeing it, you know, creep up over that 2.5, you know, we do see it being related or linked to more um you know, cases of, of mood or, or low mood and depression. And we see that reflected in the literature as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So as TSH goes up, we see higher rates um, of depression or more severe depression. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that upper limit of 2.5 is probably our best, you know, marker of TSH um, for multiple levels, mood, fertility, Mm -hmm. you know, TSH management overall, energy, you know, in other countries and associations have adopted, you know, this, this TSH marker of 2.5. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, we're a little bit on, we're a little lagging as far as updating our, our lab, uh, reference ranges for TSH and other um, markers,
0: but yes. Yeah. Definitely.
1: And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we won't go down that rabbit hole because yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we could do a whole other podcast on, on that, mm-hmm. but yeah, a ton of different mm-hmm. markers that, um, which is why that interpretation of the lab work is so important, right? We're not just relying on the lab to tell us, okay, this is normal. Um, we're all good. We're we're really going through number by number and and doing a, a more in-depth assessment and interpretation. Um if the, if let's say your TSH was one and you were like, okay, like, you know, this patient has depression, should we look in, you know, deeper, you know, then I would consider potentially some other thyroid markers may be worth testing. So, um, I mentioned the antibodies. Um, so thyroid antibodies, if you're not familiar with those, there are two of them, um, thyroperoxidase antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies. They're $10 each to test. So they're really like cost effective, worthwhile tests to do. Um, And if the antibodies are positive, that's essentially, um, you know, telling us that there's an autoimmune process going on against the thyroid gland. There's inflammation affecting the thyroid tissue. And over time that can lead to low thyroid function. Mm -hmm. Um, So the there's two important things about the presence of antibodies. One is that they can cause their own symptoms. So even if your TSH is one, Mm -hmm. the presence of those antibodies can cause symptoms of anxiety and low mood and fatigue and swelling and, 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 and right. Like there's, they're telling us that there's some inflammation in the body and that chronic inflammation can cause you know, like as you, as you know, and as you talk about with your patients, I'm sure the chronic inflammation can cause, you know, its own long list of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important piece of, um, the testing, the antibodies is that they can cause their own symptoms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second piece is that they, um, can, um, if left unaddressed can lead to hypothyroidism down the road. Um, so the sooner that we can, you know, test and address positive antibodies, we're really, you know, working preventatively with our patients to prevent them from, you know, becoming hypothyroid down the road. And we're preserving as much functional, healthy thyroid tissue as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, which is great. You know, who doesn't want that?
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is really interesting because this is our whole idea of like preventative medicine. And yeah. it's rarely, even someone who's diagnosed with hypothyroidism, I, I, I rarely see them, their antibodies tested by their conventional practitioner. 100%. Usually it'll be TSH and then T4, which we'll talk about. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so I always will ask because it makes a difference from a, from a naturopathic perspective in terms of treatment and how we might approach it um but yeah and even just to see you know somebody's antibodies start developing or or increasing before their tsh changes or any other thyroid marker, so maybe years before they're diagnosed with hypothyroidism absolutely and yeah and and this is like you know i think common in a lot of the patients that we see in general is this feeling of not feeling like yourself, not feeling well, and yet your blood work is quote normal. Yeah. And I always hear this in functional medicine, like WNL. So within normal limits is also exactly. code for we're not looking. <laughs> so you know, are there antithyroid antibodies below the surface that we've never checked? And yeah, and, uh, and I've, I've certainly seen it and I've seen the opposite. I've seen that antibodies are low and then we know it's not, Absolutely. that's not what's happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, people have heard of antibodies I'm sure from COVID, (laughs) but they're they're immune markers that attack, you know, either like a virus or a bacteria or a foreign um, invader that can sometimes turn on our own tissues. In this case, we're making antibodies that are directing the immune system against the thyroid. Yes. And over time that causes damage to the thyroid tissue and then it can cause hypothyroidism. Um, yeah, and the exactly. most common cause of hypothyroidism is this, this Hashimoto's, um, Yes, yeah. And so, and, and that is what you mentioned is part of your story that you, your TSH was normal all of your thyroid markers yeah. were normal, no diagnosis, but then you had, uh, elevated antithyroid antibodies. Um, yeah. my mom, one of my best friends, same thing. <laughs>
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very, very common. Like you said, I mean, Hashimoto's is the most common cause of hypothyroidism, like 90, Mm. 95%, especially in women. Um, And, you know, we see it being more prevalent as far as, you know, being diagnosed around often hormonal changes. So that's, you know, often around pregnancy or postpartum or menopause. Um, But you're right. Like these antibodies have often been lurking in the background for, you know, five, seven, like sometimes 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my case, you're, you know, what you said, as far as I found the thyroid antibodies. And at that time, my TSH was totally normal. So I was like, okay, like not too worried about it. Like, we'll just track it over time. See what happens. You know, over the course of, you know, probably a year or two, my antibodies continued to go up, and so did my TSH. Mm-hmm. And then after a year or two, I was like, okay, I got to get serious about this because it's not looking good. (laughs) So then I started to incorporate more, you know, directed treatment at my, my antibody levels and keeping my TSH in a more optimal range. Um, and fortunately I've been able to manage it, you know, for the last six years, um, you know, I had, a healthy pregnancy. I had, you know, my son, very healthy postpartum. And I think that a lot of that is because I was able to find it early and work preventatively with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so grateful that I was able to do that. And I had the knowledge to do that for myself, but there are so many patients that don't, right. And they, they experience things like depression, like fatigue, like miscarriages, like Mm -hmm. postpartum thyroiditis and anxiety without ever knowing that, you know, it's really been an underlying thyroid issue the whole Mm -hmm. time. And I think that is, you know, the bigger mission for me and the bigger message is, is getting that full assessment and, and, you know, hopefully preventing as many women as possible from going through that
0: experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. And just increasing awareness of people even know to ask for this and advocate for this hundred percent, 10 yeah. bucks, like not that yeah, big a deal. For it me. is literally
1: yeah. like, it's easy. Yeah. It's an easy, easy test to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely worth, worth asking your practitioner about worth
0: reading about, um, and worth looking at for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I think one thing I see a lot is patients that have one autoimmune condition. So maybe celiac or maybe like a family history of rheumatoid arthritis. And a lot of their autoimmune markers are low, you know, but they have these kind of general like autoimmune type symptoms, inflammatory symptoms. A lot of the time they'll have elevated thyroid, antithyroid antibodies. Um And I've heard it expressed like this. I don't know if you agree, but like the thyroid is our canary in the coal mine, like a sensitive tissue and often is sort of the first to exhibit an autoimmune pattern. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, when we see patients um, with multiple autoimmune conditions mm-hmm. or maybe just, just this general low-level kind of inflammatory state, we can often pick up thyroid antibodies as one of the first markers of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I do see that clinically a lot. Um, and sometimes I'm, I'm kind of putting my patients in two different piles. One is like this very clear hypothyroid, you have Hashimoto's, you have, you know, very high thyroid antibodies. It is thyroid specific. And there are other patients that I'm like, we're picking up thyroid antibodies. I'm not sure how clinically, you know, relevant it is from a thyroid perspective. I think it's indicative of this larger inflammatory story. Mm-hmm. Um, so some, that is often how, you know, I'm, I'm seeing sometimes these two different pathways, um, in my practice anyways, mm-hmm. and often I'm, um, you know, working with them on more of a general inflammatory, you know, autoimmune plan versus something that's very specific to the thyroid and very targeted.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. even as you're talking, yeah. I'm thinking there's a pattern that I've noticed, and it's hard to know: like, is it chicken egg? Is it yes. this more like insulin resistance? So I see like an insulin resistance, um, fatty liver and hypothyroidism mm-hmm. pattern. And from what I've read in the literature, it can be like thyroid making someone more susceptible to, you know, lower metabolic rate, more susceptible to insulin resistance and fatty liver. And then the opposite where fatty liver can uh, start to create a more inflammatory state and affect thyroid function. And so I see that a lot and it's hard to know, like, where do you start with that? But um, that makes sense when you're putting them, okay, where this person we're looking more at like general inflammation and trying to bring mm-hmm. that down and it's going to benefit your thyroid. Yeah. Uh, and then the other camp, yeah, you're, this is where we need to, we need to start here. This is the main yeah. driver of of your symptoms is the, is this uh hypothyroid state. Um, thyroid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, thyroid. our thyroid, like you said, is the orchestrator of all these different systems. So it affects our fertility. So it's like our ovarian health. It affects mm-hmm. our like, there's the adrenal sort of like, um, you know, stress and burnout and those kind of symptoms, and then there's this like metabolic uh, arena in which it can affect. So it, it's it has its hand in every pot. <laughs> right?
1: Yes, yeah, it absolutely does, and I think this is where you know we have to put on our thinking caps as a clinician and try to kind of unravel what's going on on an individual basis for for every one of our patients and and you know by talking to them and understanding their story have a better idea of where What is that thread that we need to pull on first, right? Is it the thyroid? Is it a picture of chronic stress? Is it infections and chronic infections? Is it, you know, trauma? Is it, you know, going through all of and that history taking is is so important because it allows us to really have a better idea of, of where we need to start. And in my practice, absolutely, I would say, you know, most of the patients that come through my doors have a diagnosed thyroid issue, you know, this is an area that we're, we're often focusing on first. Um, but I think that most patients that walk through any of our doors can often benefit from some sort of, you know, supportive thyroid care, but it may be down the list as far as our hierarchy and and where we want to be, you know, focusing our energy because we can't we can't do everything at once. Um, and we need to, yeah, start, start somewhere for sure.
0: Yeah. Like is, you know, yeah, is the patient with fatty liver, like is a thyroid supplement, which we'll talk about those like thyroid supplements, but is giving them like, you know, a thyroid supplement, uh, going to have the biggest, you know, if if we want to stick to like a max five supplement plan, is that going to have the biggest leverage in, in, in helping them, you know, Gain functioning and and heal. It's like maybe not right. Maybe we need to focus more liver and and insulin resistance and lowering inflammation. But maybe maybe that is a massive driver. So
1: yeah
0: yeah Um, Yeah. maybe
1: the challenges of of medicine
0: right yeah the art of medicine (laughs) exactly yeah maybe we'll talk. So when someone goes to their conventional doctor and then these are many of the patients that that walk into your office. They've been diagnosed with a thyroid condition hypothyroidism, mm-hmm. maybe I think it's probably the more, the more yes. common one. Absolutely. Um, so what happens to them? So they're, they're often screened with TSH and then what's, what's typical for many of these patients in terms of further testing that they get from their conventional doctor and then treatment. And maybe we could speak to that and then, yeah.
1: So just on the conventional side of things. Yeah. yeah. Cause that's
0: usually where people start, right? Like they usually don't for see sure. ND first. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Typically that will change.
0: I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Down the
1: road. Um, yeah. So typically people see their, their GP or family doctor first, that TSH is done. Um, if the TSH is, is elevated, um, sometimes we're looking at a you know watch and wait scenario where you know people aren't even offered treatment um initially. They are, you know, okay, maybe their TSH is four or five. And we're saying, okay, you know, your free hormones are normal, your free T4, your free T3. This is a case of subclinical hypothyroidism. Maybe we don't need to medicate you right away. We'll kind of watch and wait and, and see what happens over you know, the next year or two. Um, there are other people where their TSH are, you know, or is very elevated 20, 40, 60, like I've seen some really high TSH levels. Um, and these people are, are, um, generally given a medication right away. So, um, the most common medication that we give for hypothyroidism is levothyroxine. So it's a synthetic T4 um, or that T4 hormone. Um, and that acts um, in our body, um, produces the, or is converted to the active thyroid hormone, which is our T3. And it's the T3 that is the hormone that actually goes into all of our cells to create all those positive changes that we talked about before.
0: Mm-hmm. And so this is, so maybe we'll just j- jump in really quickly. Cause when we're talking about yeah. like elevated TSH and this was, <laughs> maybe this is the reason that you were like, I don't want to study thyroid. Cause it's like a counterintuitive totally. for mm-hmm. a lot of patients, but, yes. uh, so maybe, so yeah, TSH is when it's high, it means hypothyroidism, maybe just quickly like why that is. <laughs> For sure. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So it's a little bit opposite as far as the TSH goes, Um, but TSH is actually a a hormone that our brain produces. So it's not actually a thyroid hormone. It comes from our pituitary gland in our brain. And we can think about the TSH as a bit of like a whip almost as far as if our body or our thyroid is not producing enough thyroid hormones, then our TSH starts to go up. Um, It starts to yell at our thyroid gland. Um, and if we're still not producing enough thyroid hormones, that yelling gets louder and louder and louder. Um, so in hypothyroid where we're not producing enough thyroid hormones, our TSH is high and in hyperthyroidism where we're producing too much thyroid hormone, our TSH actually, um, comes back very low or suppressed.
0: Yeah. Perfect. So yeah, when someone's yeah. TSH is like four, a little bit out of range, it's like, there's a low level. Yeah.
1: We're just, (laughs) we're just kind of yelling a little bit, right. We're just a little impatient, a little irritable. If it's like 10, we're like, yo man, like, let's get to it. Start making more thyroid hormones. Um, and you know, when it's 40 or 60, we're, we're screaming, right? Like there's nothing happening there.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Super. And I think like when you mentioned the watch and wait, this, I think I see a lot of patients frustrated by this. Um, yeah and as NDs, right, we're, we're, we're thinking in the realm of functioning and optimal functioning. And so not necessarily like, do you have a disease or not? Right. That's not necessarily Mm -hmm. our, our, um, differentiation. Like we want to help somebody feel as best they can. So, but what I'll often say to people, because the conventional, um, treatment is Synthroid is levothyroxine it's a yep. lifelong medication. You take it like two hours away from food. It's something that you take forever. So when that's the only tool that someone's wielding, often we're careful with it. If someone's TSH yeah. is slightly elevated, the the prescribing physician might think like, well, maybe this is temporary transient. And do I want to Absolutely. put this person on a lifelong medication if it might go back to normal in a few months? Right. Um, although this is frustrating for patients because they're like, well, I want to feel better. I want there to be a solution and I want you to tell me what's wrong with me. Um, so maybe we can move to, okay, what would an ND do? And, 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 oh, and then also, you know, and, and I'm sure you see many patients like this, they're on Synthroid. So they've been diagnosed with hypothyroidism. They've been prescribed Synthroid. They're taking it every day. And yet they yeah. still don't feel optimal. So there's this treatment right. gap that can happen. So there's like a couple of scenarios, I think that yeah. are pretty common for people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think in that like first scenario that you mentioned where mm-hmm. we're seeing kind of like a borderline TSH again, like it, it, for me, it comes down to further assessment. So um, you know, if, if someone came into my office like that, you know, okay, my TSH is five, I haven't started medication yet. Like you know, what do we do next? Um, And I keep coming back to thyroid antibodies, but obviously that would be like, you know, the next step in assessment as far as um, finding out if they have positive antibodies, because if they do have thyroid antibodies, this is generally not something that's going to get better as time goes on. Right. So there is no point waiting a year or six months to, you know, start treatment or, you know, do things like that, because if we don't address it, it's just going to get worse over time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is a huge percentage of people that are maybe told to, you know, wait it out or see if it changes, um, mm-hmm. but aren't having their antibodies assessed and aren't taking into consideration that autoimmune pro- uh, process um, right. and how this
0: disease progresses over time. Yeah. Um, so that's it's definitely like, one. Oh, you just kind of have low iron, like it's like, right. which I sometimes see Hundred percent. It, like there's something driving this and it's going to get worse if we leave it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the more challenging one for often us as practitioners is if that antibodies are actually totally within normal, then we're like, okay, now what do we do with this patient? Uh, And you mentioned some really good um, other, you know, tests that I'm often looking at. So as part of, you know, that complete blood work, looking at iron levels and seeing if people are low iron, Mm -hmm. that in itself can lead to... You know, increases in TSH. Vitamin D is another one that can impact TSH levels. Um, so, you know, doing some nutrient testing and see if we're missing some building blocks, essentially, um, for for thyroid hormones. We often um, also see the impact of other hormones on our thyroid hormone production. So, cortisol can impact TSH levels. You know, estrogen can impact TSH levels as far as you know, typically oral estrogen or um, added estrogen that we're taking as, as a form of medication. So these are all things that what's that, or like birth control could that. Yeah. 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 Any, any oral estrogen can definitely, um, impact our thyroid hormone. So these are other things that we would want to take into account and consider, um, for people who have an abnormal TSH where maybe their antibodies are, are not abnormal or are not elevated.
0: Yeah. I see the iron one a lot in practice, like someone's ferritin iron storage will be low and their TSH will be like usually more typically in the threes, not out of range, but still not great. And so then we're always like, well, is this like, do we go thyroid? Is that the driver? But what I, oh, like I've found pretty much every time, as long as there's no antithyroid antibodies is that like, yeah, once their, um, ferritin comes back into a more normal or more optimal, um, number, then yeah, TSH comes right down to the ones or low twos and yeah. Um, and that's
1: brilliant, right? Like what an easy solution. Like those yeah. are not people who we want to give a thyroid medication mm. and have them on a thyroid medication for the rest of their life. Like it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. Um, so if we can treat it from a, you know, a, a, nutri- a nutrient point of view or other things that are impacting the thyroid, then, I mean, that's what a gift to those people yeah. and those patients.
0: Yeah. And then with that other scenario where somebody's like, okay, they went to their MD, their TSH was like ten, MD's yeah. like, okay, here's a new medication for you. It's a tiny little pill. You take it every morning before food. <laughs> so yeah. Set your alarm and wait before an hour. Coffee, coffee. More importantly, yeah, <laughs> it's a horrible. Yeah, yeah, and and then they're like, you know, okay, I don't know, maybe I feel a little bit better. Maybe, uh, maybe not, you know, and, and, and maybe I feel a little bit better, but there's still a big gap in how I feel. And could this still be my thyroid or is the thyroid treated? Yeah. And, and so, mm -hmm.
1: yeah, so Um, yeah, again, like if, you know, a patient like that is, is coming into, into my office, I'm like sounding like a broken record here, but like assessment, 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 right. So in those patients, I am looking at a TSH, I'm looking at their free hormones as well. T4 and T3, we're looking at thyroid antibodies, you know, maybe they haven't been tested. Maybe they've been missed. And then looking at, you know, those nutritional um, mm-hmm. markers as well. So, you know, my big three are iron B12 and vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing that allows us to take a look at a couple different things. One is, you know, the thyroid hormones themselves, you know, are they, are they truly looking optimal to our eyes on, on blood work, mm-hmm. you know, or is their medication, Um, being dosed appropriately where their TSH is, you know, landing in that optimal range where we want to see it between, you know, one and two is really what we want to aim for. 2.5 at the very high end Mm -hmm. if someone is on a thyroid medication, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And then their T4 and their T3. So we all, we also, you know, want to see these hormones in adequate ranges. So our T4 is typically in the mid range, anywhere from 12 to 16. If people are on a thyroid uh, medication like uh, levothyroxine or synthroid, which is T4 based. And then we also want to see our free T3, I would say, and, you know, from the mid to, to high range. So, you know, anywhere from 3.5 to 5.5. It's a bit of a larger range um, with the free T3 because it is a bit of a, um, it's a test that there's a lot of variation with. So I give it a little bit of a larger gap, but sometimes what we see in patients is that their TSH is, is normal. It's great, even to my eyes, you know, in an optimal range, their T4 is great. They're on a T4 medication, makes sense. But their T3 is like really lagging behind. So it might be like two, 2.5, 2.5, you know, and it, and it's, it is coming up low when we're testing it on their blood work. Um, and in this situation, it makes sense that they would still be experiencing chronic symptoms of hypothyroidism because that level of actual active thyroid hormone, the one that is actually doing all the work is low. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in those people we see it being a conversion issue. So that's kind of like the word on the, on the street, as far as, you know, in functional medicine and naturopathic medicine, we talk about conversion a lot. Um, So, you know, in these people, we see that there's a challenge converting their thyroid medication or that synthetic T4 into that active T3. So we either need to, you know, look at ways that we can support that. Um, you know, naturally in their body um, to support, you know, them taking in this T4 medication, converting it to T3. um, Or we can also look at different types of medication that have T3 already built into it. So there's less burden on the body to do some of that converting um, or conversion
0: work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, this is, yeah. So we can like get that conversion happening. There's nutrients, some obstacles like is cortisol an obstacle to that conversion and yeah,
1: yeah. so
0: like so many things can mm-hmm. affect the proper conversion
1: into T3 or the enzyme that does um that work so there are certain nutrients so that that specific enzyme is selenium dependent so selenium you know can be an important cofactor in making sure conversion happens mm-hmm. a lot of the conversion happens in our liver so if there's you know fatty liver if there's insulin resistance you know mm-hmm. that can definitely impact uh how well our body is able to to do this conversion if there's chronic inflammation if there's high cortisol so like you see like when i'm talking right we're like this is like 99 of our patients have at least one of these barriers Mm -hmm. Um, that's going to impact potentially this proper conversion from happening. So at times, you know, integrating T3 into their medication mm-hmm. is sometimes the most successful way that we can achieve, you know, this as close to the symptom free as, as
0: possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when we were even talking before about that, the fatty liver, like hypothyroid connection, Somebody yeah. gets put on medication and they're like, well, maybe this will help my insulin resistance, fatty liver, but no, because part of the condition is the issue with conversion. So maybe either working yeah. with that conversion or uh something like a desiccated, which we can get into that has T3, yeah. kind of skips that step and allows yeah. the whole, like all the gears to start moving properly. Yes, um, exactly. So we and Ds are able to prescribe desiccated. Uh, mm-hmm. and maybe'll we'll t- and, and that can be maybe somebody's only medication like if they decide to do that in lieu of synthroid, I've also topped people up with desiccated who are already on synthroid. like you might mm-hmm. do a little bit to just get their levels in a more optimal range if they're um, if their GP is not willing necessarily to like increase their synthroid dose. but yeah, maybe let's talk about what's desiccated thyroid.
1: Yeah. So um, desiccated thyroid is a, is another form of medication a thyroid medication out there. We consider it to be a combination thyroid medication because it contains both T4 and T3. So we're having both of those um, thyroid hormones in it. It is sourced from um, porcine or pork thyroids. Um, So that's where, you know, we're getting the hormones derived from. So in a lot of cases, you know, this is why it might be called like a natural desiccated thyroid versus a synthetic, you know, T4. Um, Because it's sourced from a a gland itself, it also contains some of these less active thyroid hormones like T2 and T1 that, you know, don't get a lot of press. We don't talk about them a lot. Um, And I'm not sure you know, exactly how beneficial those hormones are is, like, we don't really have a good understanding of them clinically, but we are getting a full spectrum of thyroid hormones when we're, when we're opting for a, a desiccated thyroid, um, instead of a, a Synthroid, um, or level thyroxine. So, like you said, it, it can be used on its own instead of synthroid, um, and you can combine them as well. There's there's no issue in in doing that and and giving people a little bit of that, you know, T3, uh, which is sometimes a game changer for for a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. Like the T1 T2 thing, because I'm sure people are wondering. We're like, you're talking about T3 and four. What happened to one and two? <laughs> yeah,
1: where's one and two?
0: <laughs> And I wonder if, yeah. it's, if it's kind of like a plant. We don't understand what those compounds do, but they may yeah. communicate or produce some sort of synergistic, like s- some uh, overall holistic sort of benefit, but who knows? Um, yeah. And one thing, so one thing I remember from your course that I'll never forget, <laughs> I'll never forget, Katie, is this idea, because I always thought that um, when somebody had Hashimoto's picture, so elevated anti-thyroid. thyroid antibodies that that we had to address the immune system and that thyroid replacement. So either like a synthroid or desiccated wasn't going to treat it. But then what I learned from your course is that Mm -hmm. desiccated and synthroid both can reduce antibodies, um, which I think was really important for me to understand because I always thought like I have to, I have to address the immune system. I have to go after uh, antibody reduction to fix this or to help this uh, person heal. But, um, but yeah, but actually supporting thyroid hormone production via a medication um, Mm -hmm. is a way to do that as well. Yeah. Maybe you could, speak to that. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely.
1: And I would say like, it's, it's one of our tools, right? I don't yeah. like, you know, let's not only use Synthroid to address it. Cause I think that's, you know, what happens in a lot of cases and and where a lot of people tend to still, you know, be experiencing chronic symptoms, but mm-hmm. it can be a really valuable tool. So, you know, when there's this chronic inflammatory state on the thyroid gland, taking a thyroid medication what i say to people is like kind of like just lets the thyroid chill out and relax a little bit like it the it brings down the inflammation it can bring down thyroid antibodies by allowing that you know burden or that pressure um to decrease that's on the thyroid gland so you know whether we're using synthroid or desiccated thyroid were both of the DSH into a more low normal range. Um, and in that way,
0: Anyways, we had a bit of a. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: So when when we take a thyroid medication like synthroid levothyroxine or desiccated thyroid, um, it does help to alleviate some of the stress and the inflammation that's affecting the thyroid gland, keeping that TSH in a low normal range. Um, and, and that often results in a, a lowering of our thyroid antibodies just all on its own, but we absolutely do want to combine it with, you know, those things that you mentioned as far as addressing the inflammation and the autoimmunity. Um, and I think using both of those is where we really get some like dynamite results for our patients.
0: Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. That's, that was such a good thing for me to learn because and and it makes complete sense when you're giving the thyroid just a, like it, you think of like the antibodies are attacking and it's struggling to produce thyroid hormone and it's working really yeah. hard. If you just take yeah. a bit of the burden off of it, it you yeah. give it a bit of a chance to to chill and to heal the tissues that are inflamed. And, and absolutely. It, yeah.
1: And while you know, while we do this underlying work as far as reducing the antibodies and and especially if it's something that we catch early enough. Um, You know, a lot of my patients are able to take a thyroid medication for, you know, maybe a year or two years, and then we're able to decrease their dose and come off of it because Mm -hmm. the thyroid gland has you know, been able to take that break and to heal. And we're, we've addressed the inflammation and um, they're able to, you know, come off of their medication entirely. So I think sometimes this whole messaging of like, Oh, once you start it, you can never come off of it is not always the case Depend, you know, it, we, it really is patient specific, patient
0: specific. Hmm. Yeah, I found that personally, I was on desiccated for a while and then, yeah, and then I came off and everything kind of Went back, like kept in the optimal range, which was really great. Um, Amazing. So I didn't have to wait an hour before starting my coffee in
1: the morning. Painful, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe we'll get into some nutrients because people have heard of iodine, and that is something that's a little bit. Yeah. Um, so th- that's in a lot of these sort of thyroid combo supplements, like you know um these supplements that are um marketed to support thyroid function people hear of iodine a lot of patients ask about it you know why is that not the whole story like what are some nutrients that people should consider that that you normally work with like we talked about ferret like iron we talked about d um -hmm. yeah i'll
1: definitely speak to like the iodine and thyroid support complexes I feel like I have, like, I'm always like a little bit on like a soapbox about these topics. So you can cut me off at any time. Um, so the the thyroid support complexes, like I think in theory, like it's a great idea. It's a great concept, right? We'll just give the thyroid all of these, you know, ingredients, backbone ingredients that it needs to produce thyroid hormones. So um, for those of you who Don't know. So our thyroid hormones are made up of iodine and um, tyrosine as well. Um, So those are two hormones or two ingredients or nutrients that our body uses to make thyroid hormones. So I think You know, in in a very A equals B simplistic view, it would make sense to give our body more of these nutrients, and our body would just naturally make more thyroid hormones. Um, Unfortunately, that's that's not how it often works, and in the vast majority of cases. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I don't know what your experience has been with thyroid support complexes. I, you know, in my in the first couple years of practice, I used them a lot. Um, and then I was like, man, these do not work very well. Like very rarely did I see like significant improvement with them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that a big reason is because of, you know, it's only providing those backbone ingredients to the thyroid gland. And if a thyroid is, you know, inflamed, if it's stressed out, Um, we can give it a dump truck full of iodine or a dump truck full of tyrosine, and it's not necessarily going to be able to make Mm. thyroid hormones, even in the best case scenario. So the more important thing is is to address the inflammation and those thyroid antibodies. And that's the way that we're going to get the most significant results for our patients. Um, I I don't even carry a thyroid support complex anymore, like in my clinic. And that says a lot because I see like (laughs) only thyroid patients. Right. Um, So I have really like, once I changed, you know, the way that I approach thyroid conditions, like that's when I really started to see More benefits for my patients. Um, And iodine is a really tricky one as well because, you know, we see a lot of different opinions around iodine take iodine, don't take iodine. You know, some practitioners are recommending very high doses of iodine, Um, you know, specifically when it comes to Hashimoto's disease and what we see in the literature, it's it's very clear that excess or added iodine is actually detrimental to this Mm. disease process. What we see is that it acts as a pro-oxidant or causing more inflammatory stress on the thyroid gland um, and can actually trigger cases of Hashimoto's or Graves' um, hypothyroidism Um, disease. So we really need to be Mm -hmm. cautious around iodine intake in our thyroid patients if they have those positive antibodies or if we don't know their antibody status. So, you know, if you're someone out there listening who, you know, maybe your your TSH is a little above normal um, and, you know, you don't know your antibody status, you've never had them tested, you know, don't go out and buy a thyroid support complex that has added iodine into it, because that may be actually something that's going to worsen your condition or disease in the long
0: term without you even knowing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I think like what my thing with iodine. So there are certain conditions like uh fibrocystic breasts and breast tenderness mm-hmm. and things like that, that it's indicated for. But I'm always like, you know how do I balance a potential deficiency with then? Yeah. This potential to harm with excess iodine. And I think I don't there aren't, I don't know if if any, but I don't know any good ways to, and patients will ask, you know, how do I know if I'm getting enough iodine or a red iodine? And because we do need iodine and it's unclear, like if it's a common deficiency and how to test for that deficiency, I don't have a good way of, of doing it. And I guess just getting it from diet might be a, a safe, um, way to, to ensure someone's getting some iodine without overdoing it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It is like, so it it is a bit of one of those Goldilocks nutrients, right. Or, or something that has a, what we call, you know, very narrow therapeutic index. So Mm -hmm. the sweet spot for iodine intake is very narrow. We don't necessarily want no iodine at all because it is important for things you know, like breast health and thyroid health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during pregnancy, you know, we need to have iodine in our prenatal because baby needs it for brain development. Like there's some really important roles that iodine plays. Um, but on the flip side, you know, once we tow the line into iodine excess, then we're also potentially creating more issues. Um, So, you know, that, that range can be really, really narrow. Um, We're talking like, you know, a hundred micrograms can make a difference, which is very easy to get, you know, from a dietary standpoint. So I think most of us are probably getting our iodine needs met from our diet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in in the vast majority of people so a lot of our our iodine content comes from um, dairy eggs Mm -hmm. commercial breads have iodine in them iodized table salt like that's something that we're finding in a lot of foods you know if you're eating out you know, in processed foods or using added salts, or if you're using iodized table salt at home, fish and seafood have lots of iodine in them. Certainly if you're having any seaweed based foods, you know, those definitely have lots of iodine in them. The little like seaweed snacks or just going out for sushi, um, having, you know, any algae based things. So these are all things to consider that would be contributing to your iodine intake, but also things that I talk about, you know, with a lot of my patients, as far as making sure that they're not having too much of those things. Um, so I talk about the three S's so supplements. So looking at, you know, thyroid support complexes that have, you know, potentially added iodine in them, multivitamins that have, you know, sometime more iodine than we want our thyroid patients to be on, Um, And sometimes superfoods like greens powders and things like that will have algae-based powders like chlorella um, that have a lot of iodine just naturally in them that I may want my patients to to avoid. Um, So supplements is a good one to think about. Salt, we talked about iodized salt. So if you're someone that should be having less iodine switching to a kosher salt um, or even a Himalayan or a sea salt has less iodine um, than an iodized table salt. Um, And then the seaweeds, So sushi, seaweed, you know, salad, seaweed, snacks, algae based superfoods, things like that. So those are the three, I think, sources that we can get almost in trouble with if we're having a lot of those things in our in our diet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we're like just you know pounding back the just greens, brushing seaweed <laughs> snacks or chlorella oh powders,
1: then yeah, it, it could be an issue
0: for sure. Yeah. So I'm laughing yeah. because I would like just <laughs> it's like cracked me those things, but I don't know. I always thought, well, maybe it means I need I iod- It's hard to, but it's also they're also very salty, so it could just be a salt an
1: addiction. A salt just craving, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you're right; like testing iodine is is a real challenge. There really is not a good accurate way of testing iodine levels. So that becomes a challenge too. And you know, we want that objective marker. We want, you know, to assess our patients for iodine levels. Um mm-hmm. we don't have a, a really good way of doing that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's hard. Like it's it's always it's, yeah, like a Goldilocks vitamin is a perfect way of describing it. Yeah. Then one thing, yeah, I think you asked, do I use the so I'll also say this because just in case patients are listening, we're like, Hey, I got put on a thyroid multi. Totally. <laughs> wow. yeah. And
1: sometimes that is what we want to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think for, for, there is one product I'm thinking of that has uh tyrosine and ashwagandha and selenium, um, a little bit of iodine, not, not a terrible amount, but I think I'll not really just for thyroid, but sometimes I give that supplement for, um, adre- it's more for the ingredients as known as for like some adrenal support, some energy support, yeah. and a lot of the time for fertility because selenium iodine, um, you know, th- those can also be helpful for ovarian health. So there's like, like the tissues it's interesting because they like our thyroid tissue, our ovaries, our adrenal glands themselves yes. require similar nutrients, mitochondrial support, um, Dopamine. So dopamine's a hormone in the brain or a neurochemical in the brain that is also based on tyrosine, just like thyroid mm-hmm. hormones. Mm-hmm. So there's often, yeah, there's often like a, you know, sometimes when we're trying to minimize the supplements to give someone that, that could be beneficial, but you're right. Like to be more specific when we know specifically what someone's dealing with, especially when it's more of a, like those multi sort of thyroid products are not indicated for the more Hashimoto's like picture, in my opinion, like not for elevated thyroid. I would
1: definitely Mm -hmm. echo that sentiment. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I, the, yeah, the, the thyroid support complexes I am not using in a Hashimoto's picture, Mm -hmm. which, you know, as we talked about is the vast majority of people with Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism. Um, So -hmm. I think we you know, not just patients who are, you know, maybe looking for solutions in shopping and shopping at health food stores, but, you know, practitioners as well. We need to rethink some of our, our tools and, and how we're addressing some of these conditions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing and one of the things that we, one of the conflicts we face, even in uh, the reputation of our profession is that, like we mentioned, uh, hypothyroidism can encompass like every symptom that somebody might struggle with, like a typical mm-hmm. person would struggle with. And then you go to the health food store. So you Google it and you find, okay, well, my, my hair loss and my puffiness and my brain fog and my regular periods are dry skin. And then you go to the health food store and you see thyroid. And so like, okay, let me, let me take this. And that's, you know, we're often like missing the, the mark, the, um, the assessment and the understanding of what's going on and how to actually address it in a meaningful way. So, Yeah. That's, I think an obstacle that, um, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it's a trap. I think many patients have fallen into who are like trying to get their thyroid working with, um, products that are marketed for thyroid, but aren't really addressing what might be actually going on. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Especially when we get into that. Okay. Yes. It's a thyroid issue, um, and it affects your thyroid, but You know, Hashimoto's, when it all comes down to it, is an autoimmune issue, and I think Mm -hmm. that's where we need to focus most of our efforts and and treatment um, Mm -hmm. options on. Um, And all of the things that are success, actually successful in treating Hashimoto's, are things that act on, you know, decreasing anti or decreasing inflammation, balancing our immune system you know, giving our body antioxidants, um, you know, those are, those are the things that are really going to move the needle, um, forward for our patients.
0: Mm-hmm. Like you met, I know in one of your, I think it's an Instagram reel, I think okay, you mentioned, uh, inositol and this is something yeah. new to me. Yeah. Maybe you can speak about that because that is, uh, something that I have used for other conditions, but I have never thought about, and maybe I'm just behind on the mm-hmm. research for this with, uh, for thyroid conditions. So maybe, yeah. Maybe what's inositol. How's it work? Obviously we're not telling people just to go and get treatment. You need the assessment no, to, no. Need to know what treatment's indicated, but I think this is interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Nositol is like, I have a major love affair with it because it is, it is beneficial for so many different areas of the body. And as a clinician, that's such a bonus when you can give one product and it can do, So many things like that's just, you know, amazing for us. Um, So it is uh, like essentially almost like a B vitamin, uh, like it's what type of nutrient it is. And it's uh, like a carbohydrate based um, powder. That's often how we're prescribing it to our patients. Um, A lot of uh, people are more familiar with inositol um, and using it with things like PCOS, Mm -hmm. um, which is more of an ovarian um, condition uh, and irregular ovulation. So our ovaries um, and the inositol is helpful for promoting regular ovulation. Um, the research for inositol with Hashimoto's is actually um, really cool. So we see that giving, you know, anywhere from 600 to 1200 milligrams of inositol a day um, mm-hmm. can decrease our thyroid antibodies and can help to regulate our, our thyroid hormones. So improve our TSH levels. And at the, the, you know, how a nozitol works is essentially twofold as far as the thyroid's concerned. One, it acts as an anti-inflammatory to help decrease those thyroid antibodies, but it also acts in terms of the signaling pathways that our body uses to manage our TSH and our thyroid hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, So when I started using Inositol and integrating it into my treatment plans, like it was a game changer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like it really makes a massive difference for, you know, the the level of uh, reduction I'm seeing in thyroid antibodies and in TSH levels as well. Um, so it's, it's very cool. I love using it. It tastes like sugar. So like, it's super easy for people to take. Um, and it's then low if, dose, you know, just 600 to 1200. Super yeah, low. it is yeah. a lower, a lower dose. Mm-hmm. We're often using up to four grams in conditions like PCOS or insulin resistance, which, you know, as we've kind of mentioned before, there's a lot of overlap between, mm-hmm. you know, PCOS and hypothyroidism and insulin resistance and hypothyroidism. And then it also has mood benefits as well so, so, you know, there's tons of things that it can address all at once. Um, I'm generally using it for, from the thyroid perspective, but um, yeah, it's one of, it's one of my favorites. It's awesome. And it's one, like you said that, you know, a lot of us are not necessarily aware of um, mm-hmm. or, you know, classically been taught around the benefits of a and, and thyroid health. Um but when you you get into the research and looking at the the nutrients that we do have a lot of you know high quality studies and evidence-based research behind, and nazatol is absolutely one of them.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. yeah, like it it's also very high dose, like anywhere from nine to eighteen grams for like OCD or psychosis, mm-hmm. and it's thought to like help serotonin fit better. Into receptors. That's cool. Yeah, which is interesting. Someone wow. who might be on like an SSRI, like a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor for OCD, may not be getting full benefit if their serotonin that they make doesn't mm. fit into the receptors. So, anacetyl can help to kind of like modulate um, as a, I think, a yeah, neuromodulator cool. in and of itself. So, yeah, so there's a lot of overlap. Isn't Someone it amazing? Yeah. Like if you have insulin resistance and Hashimoto's and OCD, and those things can definitely coexist. It's like, well, here's a, here's a one size fits all one thing for you to take. Yeah, It's like sugar. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just like a scoop of powdered sugar, you know, in your water and you're good to go. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. And, and then there's some, there's some herbal medicine too. Like ashwagandha for raising T4. And I don't know if you work with Romania for, for the autoimmune picture, but like, yeah, I mean, it's always tricky with herbs. They can be, um, sometimes expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. sometimes don't, what would I say about herbs? I love herbal medicine, but I find that there's often a point at which the herbs, uh, have done their work and, and and we don't no longer get benefit anymore. Like sometimes I, I find that, um, yeah. yeah so yeah. Is, is, is yeah. What you, I mean,
1: yeah. yeah. Ashwagandha is probably the one we have the most research for, yeah. um, around treating, uh, hypothyroidism, not necessarily Hashimoto's, but like you said, increasing or, or boosting up that T4 production that Mm -hmm. the thyroid, um, is making. So, um, I do like to sometimes incorporate that into, you know, treatment care plans, especially, you know, if we're dealing with, cortisol dysregulation and chronic stress. Like I love ashwagandha for that as well. Um, so it's, it is certainly one of my more commonly prescribed herbs. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say that it's like really the, the biggest one that I use from a mm-hmm. thyroid perspective. When we get into some of these other herbals that I think are used, you know, a lot traditionally um, or have, you know, some history as far as being used from a, a thyroid perspective, um when i'm you know looking through like the research and things like that for you know these herbals a lot of them are you know animal studies mm-hmm. like in vitro studies like very few, like maybe two or three in vitro or animal studies from like the 70s. Like there's really no updated research on some of these herbals where there is a ton of emerging research when it comes to things like anazotol and selenium and vitamin D. So those are always the things that I'm starting with. And I'm seeing you know, obviously good results with. And then, you know, if, if we need other supports, then maybe considering some herbals down, down the road, but you know, you're, you're totally right. The herbal route can be much more costly for patients. Mm-hmm. So for, from a cost perspective, you know, like, a bottle of selenium, it's 14 bucks and it lasts yes. you two months. Right. Totally. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so I'd rather, you know, start there, you know, from a cost perspective, but also, you know, because of what the research is telling us, um, uh, with my patients, um, for mm-hmm. me anyways, that's how my practice has developed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think like, and this also just speaks more to this idea of like, when you're doing an assessment with someone, you're looking at the whole person, you're, you know, it's like, okay, well, this person is a great, like, well, their iron is low. So we want to support them. Like, it's not a, it's not necessarily a top-down protocol type thing. So Mm -hmm. when talking about treatment, especially on this podcast, I usually like to frame it as like, here's some, here's some possibilities, but obviously you want like a bottom-up assessment for all these things to be taken together and formulating a treatment plan. Like we're always taking into account the the person in front of us in terms of like what they're capable of paying in in terms of cost. And yeah. do you like swallowing pills? Do you not? Well, Nositol is yeah. a powder. Selenium is a tiny little pill. You know yeah. uh, what sort of the max amount of things you're willing to take, like try and keep it minimal you know? Um, and so, yeah, we're looking at like, what, what makes the most sense if somebody's dealing with a lot of anxiety and, and cortisol issues and Mm -hmm. their T4 could use a bit of a boost. Maybe ashwagandha is great for that. Perfect. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, if if it's more of a Hashimoto's issue, then probably not the number one herb unless it's prescribed for other reasons. So we're looking at somebody from this holistic perspective. Um, and I guess I also want to ask about diet. Like I'm sure people have heard mm-hmm. gluten free, <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> <Totally>. yeah. <laughs> really, like yes. Gluten free. They're so Let's get it yeah, on. Yeah, I
1: know. I know. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I mean, I have lots of thoughts around you know diet, and I mean, I think the most important thing is that it does have to be individual, mm-hmm. and it does have to be tailored for each and every patient. From you know how what. You know what foods make them feel good. You know what feels right for their body. Their you know emotional health around eating um, or lack of emotional health around eating. You know this is these are conversations that we have to have with our patients. I do believe that you know our diet and our food can make a huge impact on how we feel day to day. I think that in the thyroid world, there's a lot of Um, fear-based messaging around certain types of food or certain um, categories of food. Gluten is one of them. We often see dairy being another one where, you know, some of the messaging that I'm seeing even, you know, on social media and things like that is, you know, if you are diagnosed with Hashimoto's, you can never have gluten again, never touch it. Like it sets fire to your thyroid and it will never be the same, like some really scary stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and those are things that I have, you know, read for years and years. And again, you know, going into the research about what, what it is really telling us around, around gluten, um, and that for most people, you know, these are not people who have celiac disease or, you know, some sort of, you know, autoimmune condition that, um, where they cannot tolerate gluten, but for most people, you know, they may be able to have gluten occasionally or continue to have it every day in their diet. Like for me, it is not a game changer. Or it's not a deal breaker that they have to eliminate any food from their diet in order to feel better with Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, Where maybe my message is different from some other practitioners who are like, no, in order to feel better, like you have to make dietary changes. I think it can sometimes be helpful for patients if they're, you know, ready and willing and it's something that makes sense for them. But I don't like restricting people's diet and taking out whole food groups if we don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. I don't know how you feel about it because I, this can definitely be a very, polarizing conversation, mm. especially when we're talking with, you know, n- uh, naturopathic doctors, functional doctors, mm. things like that. Like people have some, you know, fairly firm, um, sometimes beliefs around it, but
0: yeah. Like I know well, we talked, right. That there can be this, um, comorbid, like it's usually like what I've seen is someone who has celiac can yeah. often be at risk for Hashimoto. So in that yes. case, the person like hundred percent. But just in, in the case of celiac in general, whether it's causing, you know, whether it's connected to um, Hashimoto's or not, you should, you have to like use bags for your gluten-free toast in the toaster. Like it's, you can't yes. shop at bulk barn, like they're zero contamination. And, and, and maybe yeah. that person we need to talk about being um, removing any cross-contamination and being extremely strict because with celiac, there really can't be any absolutely um, gluten. And yeah, I agree with you. Like, I think the problem is with social media is that we, again, it's more of that top down, right. It's like, mm-hmm. here's the diet. And it, there's so much that goes into figuring out even on a personal level, like what is the ideal way for someone to eat? And, yeah, and there's so many things like we, ha- we live in a society where readily available, like, frankenfoods exist and mm-hmm. we might consider them like if you talk to my grandma about what she thinks eating in moderation means and me we have different ideas <laughs> it's like a very yeah. small venn diagram <laughs> right <Yes>. um yeah. <laughs> and and is just going gluten-free you know and so I, I i'm reading the book dopamine nation and she's talking about how people will impose metrics on their eating in order to uh, you know, maybe eat more healthfully. So in the past, maybe even as little as five years ago, someone would say I'm gluten-free in order to improve my diet. Now, what am I, I'm not eating cakes and, and hamburger buns and things I'm eating whole foods nowadays, right. though, if you're gluten-free, you it doesn't find survive. all those things. <laughs> exactly. Like you can eat yeah. whatever. So it's not like, you know, and Glute for patients- does not mean healthier.
1: Exactly. And, and I think free does not mean healthier.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Because are you doing like, is, is oat milk and whole, whole, whole foods sort of like organic milk or is that, is oat milk better? No. Um,
1: yeah, I think, I think we're assigning like value or like more, a moral value to, you know, foods at this point. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is, is not, you know, we, we should not be doing, um, Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenge. And, you know, for myself, like I tend to feel best not having a ton of gluten in my diet and that's, you know, it makes me bloated and makes me tired. So, you know, I don't have a ton of it, but, you know, if I like go out for pizza one weekend. Hell yeah. I'm going to enjoy my pizza. Or like, if it's my birthday, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have cake. And like, that's, you know, just things that I'm going to enjoy because food, as far as I'm concerned, is meant to be enjoyed. And is one of the big joys of life. Um, And I don't want it to be, you know just a source of stress for for me or my patients right and i think this is where you know we whittle and whittle away and whittle down yeah. our diets until it becomes so restrictive and there's you know there becomes so much fear around food and um then you know we're dealing with a whole other beast essentially at that point
0: yeah exactly and i think like i guess the last thing i'll say about that is like it's a lot of it unfortunately is trial and error. Yeah, I, I try not to like start with removal of foods unless there's massive indication that that would be beneficial for somebody. But like, usually we're talking about adding in some things that are beneficial, getting a food routine going, like balancing things a little bit more. Blood sugar is massive in my practice.
1: Getting more protein in the yeah,
0: morning. Like, I'm sure what is like, protein? Like is, yeah, before we start 100%. taking away your food, let's talk about like what makes up a yeah. meal. Um, and then, and then developing awareness, which I think a lot of us could benefit from. There's a study from the 1930s is more like this observational study where, um, yeah. this woman, uh, oh my gosh, Clara, something, she let babies self-feed six month old infants were able to just self-feed from a variety of whole foods. And her hypothesis was, or her question was like, well, do babies intuitively know what foods to eat? and, and, basically their cravings guided them to, mm-hmm. to choose foods, um, and self-select. And there's like an interesting example that one, ba- a bunch of the babies, they're, they're orphaned babies. And so a few of them had rickets, low vitamin D. And so they gave them cod liver oil, just like a little, like if, which, yeah. which if, you know, if anyone's tried is quite disgusting, Not that <laughs>
1: delicious. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And so they'd give them like a little shot glass and the babies with rickets would just like they'd they'd take it every meal Uh, until their D levels were restored and then they were not not interested anymore. And like, I don't know, that's obviously not highly controlled study, but very interesting. And so this wisdom that we might have had, how do we get back in touch with it? Like, like you said, if I eat gluten, I just don't feel well. So maybe on a night where I want to enjoy pizza, I don't mind being a little bit brain fog the next day, but if I have a massive exam, probably not going to, partake and how many people are constantly feeling brain foggy and sluggish and tired and have no idea what food it could be. So it's like restoring that control, not control, but awareness. And that's a lifelong thing. (laughs) Yeah.
1: For sure. It's a, it's a lifelong journey. And You know, for me, how I eat now is different from how I ate five years ago, 10 years Mm. ago, 15 years ago, you know, and it, it changes in different times of your life. and, and, I think that it ever is an ever evolving journey for sure.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think like, yeah, but to say like you have Hashimoto's you can never eat gluten again is too simplistic. Yeah. It's like super simplistic, not fair to the person, very stressful. You know, if, if that person's like, huh, like I just want to feel better. Like can just one inositol supplement be helpful for them? And then you see them in six months and then maybe you start talking about, Adding in yeah. greens or whatever, you know, so yeah,
1: whatever it is, right? everybody's on a
0: different journey, yeah. So, to like freak somebody out with a gluten free diet that yeah, it is. Yeah. I think, and that's, that's where our magic and our art comes as NDs is that we're working with the person and we're just like trying to help them. We're, and we're collaborating and like, what would be best for this person and what in, what in their opinion would be best for them as well, you know, versus here's the diet you're going to eat. If you don't do it, yes you're not going to get better. It's like, that's exactly, it needs, the to be, issue.
1: it needs to mm-hmm. be a conversation. And like, I have been that patient in an ND's office where it's like your first visit. And it's just like this blanket rep recommendation of like, okay, just take out gluten and dairy, like see you in a month. And I'm just like, yeah. number one, I'm not going to do that. Cause it's <laughs> no. a lot of work. Yeah. Number two, not going to come back because I'm not going to do it. And like, Mm -hmm. then that, you know, that progress or that journey is cut short because Mm -hmm. it starts with such an unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really try to meet people where they're at and chat about how they're feeling about their diet, you know, and and get their own thoughts. And, and some people are really keen and ready to make changes. And they're like, you know, I really think this is something that's not good for me. And I'm, I'm ready to take it out and just give it a couple of weeks and see what happens. And for other people, they don't seem to have any issues with it and they feel great. And, you know, we're, we're more so like tweaking protein intake, you know, getting in lots of antioxidant nutrients, you know, omega-3s, like, you know, really basic stuff. So
0: yeah. Like what are the overall patterns? How can we improve those? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Katie, any last thoughts, any, any take-homes that you want to share with people? (laughs) Oh man.
1: (laughs) I feel like we've covered so many different things today. Um, I think that, you know, for me, really the, the messaging comes back to, for, you know for women to not necessarily settle for okay, yeah, like your TSH is normal, everything's good. Sometimes there needs to be further assessments and work that can be done. Um, and sometimes you need to um, find a a different or a new new approach or new practitioner to to do that. So um yeah, i would I would say, always, you know, nailing down that assessment piece, getting that full thyroid panel done, getting your nutrients done
0: and and taking it from there. Beautiful. Thank you. And where can people find you?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. You can um, always find me on Instagram. Um, at your thyroid, your dot thyroid dot nd, um, and my uh, website. So my clinic is rooted in health in barrie Ontario, um, and then you can also find me on the Thyroid Academy, which is my new educational thyroid platform. So that's for professionals and um, patients or, or public, and that will be launching mid-April.
0: Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, yeah. all those links will be in the show notes. For Amazing. people to click on. And thank you so much. This was fantastic. Oh, it was my pleasure.
1: Yeah, it was great, great chatting with you. Great combo.